0: Welcome back to Crime Scene Queens. We are the show to listen to if you want to hear from the real experts in the field, you know, the ones that have a true understanding of the confidentiality and the respect for the deceased and their families, and we're not going to exploit the victims. What are we talking about? It's the forensics. It's us, Crime Scene Queens, and I'm Shelly, your courtroom cat. And I'm Laura, your friendly neighborhood
1: CSI and field mouse, and today we are adding in Another of our favorites to our tripod, which is a lab rat. So we have with us today Kelly Knight, who is... A associate professor with George Mason University's Forensic Science Program and a STEM accelerator. Kelly has a Bachelor of Science degree from the George Washington University and a Master's of Science degree from the Virginia Commonwealth University. And she has a concentration in forensic biology. She began her career in 2005 as a DNA technician for Bode technology. Is that right, Kelly. That's right. Did I say it right? Thank you. (laughs) And she worked for the Dawson Cruz Forensic Biology Research Laboratory while completing her master's degree. And then after that, she was a forensic DNA analyst for the Maryland State Police Forensic Sciences Division. And she qualified as a forensic expert for both forensic serology and forensic DNA analysis. And I stan her on Instagram.
2: Yes, Yes. (laughs) I love that. If
1: I missed anything, Kelly, feel free to fill in the blanks. But that was just like my little pitch on our fabulous guest today.
2: Thank you. That's it in a nutshell.
1: (laughs) That's it in a nutshell. And currently you're teaching. You um, like many of us. We haven't quite stayed with a police department. So you're currently Mm -hmm. in the university system like I am and like Shelly is, right? Yeah. So I love a good origin story. So tell me how you became Kelly the Scientist in whatever order and whatever level of detail you want to.
2: Right. Thanks for having me. First of all, I am a true fan. I don't Uh, know if you all know this, but I actually posted about the podcast probably when you all first Started out and I was oh. like I like this I was like this is it's yay. not so normally I listen to different types of podcasts that are I don't even know how you would describe them but basically I was telling people how much I love you all in a nutshell so thank I like, you go check them out oh, we love you back um, yay <laughs> but yeah I mean I the origin is I was always like a weird kind of stem girl and I hate to even say weird because mm. I I mean it It was just different. Embrace the weirdo. No, exactly. I love that part of me now. Quirky. Exactly. I was weird in like a cute way. You know, my dad was in aviation, and he always had a love for science, basically. And I think you know one of the things that I loved about my dad and my mom is just that you know they they never really put me in that stereotype of what a scientist is, and so I think a lot of You know, dads in the 80s weren't necessarily putting rockets in the hands of their daughters and things like that. But my dad totally was. I mean, he was like, hey, so you want to build this rocket? And I was like, yes, I do. You want to dissect these pig brains I bought from the grocery store? Yes, I do
1: buy them from the grocery That's store? That's so rad. Yes,
2: yeah, So you can my... You buy pig
1: brains from the grocery store. <laughs> in the South. Yeah. It's on, in
2: certain areas of the South, they you know, they cook every part of the pig and... Things like that oh. you could buy from the grocery store. So, yes, I, <laughs> I'm
1: too far south to be in the south. Florida's too south to be south, right? <laughs> yeah.
2: So, I mean, I don't, it's not like he pushed me into it, but he definitely gave me the chance to explore. And, you know, the more I showed interest, the more he nurtured it. But, you know, I, I think I just tried a bunch of different things. I didn't really know what specifically I wanted to do within STEM. At one point, I thought I was going to be a vet. And then I interned Mm -hmm. at a vet and I did my first, I participated in my first euthanization and I cried harder than the owner. So I was like, (laughs) yeah, that's not going to be the route for me. The vet was looking at me like, lady, why are you crying so? (laughs)
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was like, but I love
2: this dog they were like you met the dog five minutes ago so what <laughs> I
1: love Set that dog down. too and I never met that right. dog I love that dog right now <laughs>
2: exactly exactly you know it wasn't until 11th grade that I was exposed to forensics because I was you know in high school before CSI came out and all these other shows so it wasn't as popular as it is now I mean now it, you know Hi, all types yeah, of high school students want to do forensics. They have forensic classes. When I was in 11th grade, I was in an anatomy and physiology class and my teacher did like a blood typing lab and she made it like a crime scene scenario. And I was just blown away. I was like, oh, my gosh, like all of these years I've been learning science you know, now I see like an actual application for it. Like I see why I've been memorizing the periodic table and equations. And, you know, it was like a aha moment yeah. for me. So I, you know, went on to college and I still didn't really know if forensics was going to be a career for me because it wasn't a major. Like now you can major in forensic science, mm-hmm. which is cool. But I ended up, you know, majoring in chemistry only because I didn't do my first semester of biology that which that's <laughs> nobody a whole, does well like, their
1: first semester of anything. <laughs>
2: I mean that was like a whole, you know, full circle moment, you know, starting out hating biology and then becoming a biologist, which was crazy. But I concentrated in forensic chemistry and then that kind of crept back up. And, you know, my senior year, I decided I needed some type of experience. So I applied to work at Bodie, which you know, ultimately really flew me into that forensic DNA world and I fell in love. So it was all history from there. bitten by
1: the bug.
2: (laughs) I personally had a thing for drawing my evidence because I'm not going to lie. It was, I hate to say a Zen moment, but it was like, it was kind of like my moment to just like sit there with my notes and take a moment to like breathe and just Pull out. I had color pencils at my desk. <laughs> like, here's my color pencils. Let me draw.
0: Oh, I knew we'd be. I can draw a stick figure right. <sighs> yeah, I'm. I suck so bad. I'm
1: <laughs> the opposite. I love it.
2: The pictures weren't always great. I mean, there's redacted case notes that I show my classes. Now, there's this one particular case that I had where. The suspects were caught purely off of socks being left at all the crime scenes. and Ooh, I want to know the at, story. I know. It's crazy. I mean, but when you look at the drawings, I always tell my students, I'm like, don't judge me. I know it looks like Snoopy. These are socks. It's not yeah.
0: Snoopy. It's <laughs> not <laughs> <Is that> Snoopy. <laughs> I don't know why. When
2: I look at them now, I'm like, this really looked like Snoopy without ears. Because they were the kind of socks that had the reinforced toe. And it just looked very strange. Yeah. But
1: so it looks like he has like a little nose. <laughs> that's like, exactly what it
2: looked like. Yeah, it's pretty bad, but I mean, a sock, I wasn't going to waste time pulling out the camera and catching, you know, 50 pictures of my feet before I finally got like
1: the actual thing. <laughs> I feel like that's what most of my pictures were. What's the story behind this? Oh, yeah, the sock? The yeah, tell us the whole like thing.
2: Oh my gosh. It was, I mean, it's always the like, you would think it was like an overly simple case, but it's just the moral of the story here is that criminals just don't really think as much as you think they would think. So <laughs> <laughs>
1: they, do not. they do not. Yeah. In fact, to your point, whenever they do, I'm always like, oh, yeah, I'm impressed. Thank you. Thank you for making this hard. I love when they actually make it hard.
2: I mean, it was a series of breaking and entering Mm -hmm. cases and they were all connected because I guess the houses were all either on the same street or within the same neighborhood. But what was interesting was they found these socks at the different homes, like in the yard, which was so weird. And so they submitted the socks from the different homes and they asked us to do DNA testing on them. And I took cuttings from the different socks and I'm thinking, OK, why would the socks be there? Either they're using them as gloves or they're just really weird and they're just like running through the crime scene and throwing off like their, sh- their shoes and socks, which <laughs> I I think would be using really them as weird. Gloves. but. Right. So I'm like, they're probably using them as gloves. But here's what really kills me is, okay, you use them as gloves, but then you took them off and left them in the yard where you committed the crime. Like, I don't understand that. But anyway.
1: Girl, dumber (laughs) shit has happened and you know it. (laughs) Oh, yeah.
2: I mean, we I mean, we've had cases where they poop outside, like they commit the crime or they and then they use the bathroom in the house or they poop outside the
1: house. I've had that too. Shelly and I have talked about that. Uh-huh.
0: Yeah. Good old fecal it matter. Because, so you know, there's no weird. DNA matter at all.
1: I had a kid leave his entire backpack in a stolen vehicle. Yes. His phone, keys, wallet. It's School like... paperwork? There like, is... you know, like a graded test? At that <laughs> point, the justice system is all like, okay, were we constitutional about this process? Right. At that point. <laughs> it's insane, but... I mean, I ended up getting
2: profiles from these socks. And at the time there were no suspects. So I put them into the DNA database. There were no hits. And it wasn't until I actually left the crime lab and I started working full time as a professor that someone called me and was like, Hey, you have to go to court because by the way, that sock case you work
1: yeah. It's <laughs> finally case.
2: like hit. Yeah, it finally hit the I think two or three people in CODIS. And so they ended up It hit more guilty. than one person
1: on the socks? There were
2: multiple socks and multiple profiles. It was crazy. But they pled guilty before I even went to court. So I was like, okay, that's bad.
1: I love that you're bringing up multiple people and multiple profiles because... I know you and I kind of, so our audience knows, I had the pleasure of meeting Kelly recently at a forensics conference. And I had said, oh, I'm so glad that you're gonna do the show because I really feel like DNA isn't really an area that I can speak to. And she was generous enough to say, oh, I've heard you mention things about like mixed profiles. Okay, I did mention that, but that doesn't mean that it was any good. So when you, <laughs> will you kind of like paint for our audience, what it means, like I'm sure they can understand that there's more than one profile, but what constitutes different amounts of DNA material and like what that means scientifically?
2: Yeah, that's a good question because I was just actually trying to explain this to my students this past week when we were talking about profiles from multiple people being present on one single item. So like when you have items of evidence, And this could be any type of evidence. You know, our technology today are so sensitive that it can pick up any number of people that have had any type of contact with it. So like probably worst case scenario, if you think about a doorknob and how many people have handled a doorknob like in in a public location, hundreds of people could have touched that doorknob or like the handle of a gun or something like that. Or money. Exactly. And so if they swab these items and we test it, you're not just going to get a single mm-hmm. profile. You're going to see the profiles of multiple people in just a single item. Mm-hmm. But what we do know is that people contribute different amounts of DNA, first of all, and the amount of DNA that's left. Shudders. Exactly. And also the type of or if you have something from blood versus just like someone touched it, if there's both of those profiles there, you're probably going to see the blood in a much higher percentage versus like if someone has just touched it. And I remember getting a question about that when I went to court because there was actually a sample that I had where both the victim and the suspect were present on a single swab. And you know, there was blood there, but then there was also the other individual present. And they were trying to ask me if I could tell them which was which. Right. So like in my expert opinion, the person who deposited the blood, they would be the major contributor. Right. Because there's probably a lot more cells there versus versus the person who just handled it and just left their epithelial or their skin yes. cells behind they're probably going to be the minor contributor Ugh. so i can't definitively tell you that but that's why you get qualifying as get to expert have an expert because opinion you though,
1: kelly Yeah, right i love this conversation so much because so many people misunderstand this i was so excited to have you on because there is so many csi effects elements to this like I know I've had moments of frustration, but I don't have your area of expertise. So when people say to me, oh, when there's two profiles, that means it's contaminated. No, it doesn't. It does not mean it's contaminated.
2: No. When we think about contamination, we think about things that have happened to the evidence outside of the occurrence of what happened at that exact moment or the time of the crime or the time that the DNA was deposited. So like things that we did to contaminate it or someone else, like from the time that we collected to the time that we analyze it, that's what we think of as contamination. Like what we get, as long as we haven't done anything to add any extraneous DNA to it, that's just the DNA profile. Like whether it's one person or multiple people, that is what we got when we collected it or when we swabbed it. That's what was present. So it could be more Mm -hmm. than one person. It doesn't mean it's contaminated.
1: Yeah, but that's like a definitely a CSI effect thing. So what you and I were talking about in person is this is how Kelly the Scientist got born is because a lot of people either CSI affecting what you do or Mm -hmm. misunderstanding what you do based on media interpretation of things or just general not knowing or ignorance or assumptions. Right. Exactly. That's why. Yeah.
2: I mean, it's that whole science communication piece. Right. And that I make my students do science communication projects now because Mm -hmm. I think it's important that we not only learn how to communicate within our field and within experts, but that we acknowledge the importance of being able to communicate what we do to people who are not in forensics because. Our field, probably more so than a lot of other fields, has a lot of external factors that are affecting what the public believes about what we do and not do. And it has real serious consequences because these are people who could potentially be determining the fate of someone if they serve as a juror. Like when I think about, you know, other things and it's like, okay, well, you just sound silly that you don't believe this, whatever. But no, this is like serious real life implications. Yeah. If you have these misconceptions about forensic science, and you take that with you into the courtroom, and then you're like, "Oh no, I don't believe this because I saw twelve episodes of CSI, and I know that's not <laughs> <laughs>
1: that's not how it works," and you're yeah. like, "Like no,
0: that is not that ain't it." Just for our listeners, because you know, I, I try to you know, we all understand terminology, and we get it because that's the field that we're in. But sometimes our listeners don't. And we had used the word CODIS before. So I just wanted to say you know, that CODIS is the acronym for the Combined DNA Indexing System. And I was going to ask you, Kelly, if you could go into a little bit more explanation on CODIS.
2: Yeah. So CODIS is our DNA database that we use in forensic labs. And I think the one thing that people should understand about the DNA database is it is a lot more complicated to get samples into CODIS than people would ever even imagine.
1: (laughs) And it's not complicated for Kelly, it's complicated (laughs) for me because people like Kelly tell me to go F myself. But I'm like, here, Kelly process this dna and put it in codis and she's like no bitch that's not how that works there are rules and you must follow them or there are big big fines so for those of you who are all like oh the cops got my dna from this like random grocery bag that ain't how that works sir or man right i know I get so mad because people act like we're just like collecting DNA from people all over the place and putting it into the offender. Like I've had victims not give me swabs because they think they're going to get running CODIS because they did some shit one day. That is not how that works. I'm going to let Kelly talk about it so I don't keep ranting. (laughs) Right.
2: I mean, I think my favorite CODIS requirement, just because it's fun to say, is it has to be attributed to the putitative perpetrator. That's like my favorite one. Putative perpetrator.
1: Putative perpetrator.
2: Which is basically just a fancy way of saying that you have to be sure that the profile that you're putting in is from someone who actually committed the crime and not just like a random person. So, you, believe. so uh, yeah, you have to have the
0: belief of it. Exactly, yeah. Exactly, yeah. exactly. And,
1: and he- you, that's why elimination standards are important. And that's why when cops hand you a piece of evidence and they get all cranky because you take their swab, they can sit down because if that cop has to be excluded from the database when I swap the piece of evidence and give it to Kelly.
2: Exactly. And that, I mean, that just makes our job so much easier, right? Because if we know that we're probably going to get somebody's profile that has nothing to do with the crime, It's so much easier to be like, oh, we already know that this person, I'll give you a great example. We had a law enforcement officer who accidentally cut themselves as they were, you know, analyzing the crime scene and they accidentally bled all over the crime scene. (laughs) You know (laughs) I know. So, yes, it was really important to get that elimination standard because we knew that obviously he did not commit the crime, but we were going to get tons of that profile there. So we needed to be able to eliminate that person. But there are a lot of rules. I mean, even if you have, I'll give you another example of a sample that I was not allowed to put into CODIS. It was a swab from a gun, but the gun was taken from the suspect's car. And there's another rule that says that you can't put samples in that come from the suspect's person. Like you can't take anything that comes directly off of them and put it into CODIS. And even though it wasn't directly on them, it we had to go through all of these rules and conversations and figuring out technically yeah. it was considered to be off his person, even though it was in his car, but uh-huh. because we knew it was his car. So we could still use it for comparison purposes. So that's not to say that the sample couldn't be used at all but we couldn't upload it into CODIS. So you can still use it for comparison, but there's a lot of rules about what you can and can't put in there. And I mean, now with all of the rules about arrestee samples and things like that, I remember when I worked in Maryland, we were one of the few, if not the only state that had a really extensive expungement process. If you hadn't I forget what it was, but it was because I didn't work in the database section. But it was like if they were found like guilty or not guilty by a certain point,
0: then you had to like take the sample out. It was really complicated. And it was so much it Mm -hmm. was so much work. Is that you know, there's obviously there's the rules and the regulations that is set generally for CODIS that Mm -hmm. FBI standards or whatever. And then you're saying that like Maryland had. I mean, there's
1: local and state and. Yeah. So they've got their own.
0: Oh yeah. Like that's that's one of the worst, not Uh, the worst, but the most stringent.
2: Oh yeah. Maryland in general has really stringent rules and regulations. Maryland was the first state, I think, to really put a law in the books about the forbidden use of genetic genealogy. Like they're very like stringent about stuff like that in the state of Maryland. But yeah, you have different rules depending on the level. So CODIS has three different levels. There's like the local level which would be like within your city, within your county. Then there's the state level that kind of manages all the cities and counties. And then you have the national FBI level, which does all of the state stuff. And with each level, it becomes more and more stringent and the rules change.
1: Kelly is making it very obvious that CODIS is not a joke, right? So like her... I think that we were probably born generally in the same time because the CSI show did not exist when I was in high school or even when I started being in college for forensics. So by the time it came out, our professors had like strongly discouraged us from watching it. And at some point I had a class where they used an episode of CSI as this is why you don't like why we're having a problem in the court system. There Uh was an episode where there was a dog bite. They then swabbed the dog bite and put it into canine CODIS beta version. (laughs) And they stick the swab into like a little thing that goes into a computer and it popped up the dog. That (laughs) makes me
2: laugh because let me tell you, so that's so funny. Canine CODIS. Invent it,
1: Kelly. Invent it. No, literally, this
2: is why it makes me laugh, because my husband suggested that I do something like that, because once upon a time, he doesn't do this anymore, but he used to be a property manager at a apartment building, you know, where they paid like all of this money for, you know, these extremely small apartments. But anyway, some of the clientele that lived there was very, oh, they allowed pets, (laughs) but It was a huge deal if anyone left their pet feces on the property, like a whole like we need to have an apartment meeting. This is like tragic. And so my husband was saying that maybe they could collect like the canine DNA, (laughs) you know, like the pet (laughs) deposit so like, Put you a pay your camera. pet deposit. Right. But she's <laughs> like, you can, you know, with the pet deposit, they have to submit the pet DNA. And then when oh, you leave the feces, yes. we
1: can do the comparison. And I said, oh a my goodness. A local canine CODIS. <laughs> exactly. I Whoa. can't believe what I'm hearing. <laughs> For perspective, I remember getting paperwork back. So the cost of our DNA analysis unless we went to a private lab because we needed an expedited sample, they would send us paperwork. Like each swab was like $2,500 to process. Can you imagine canine CODIS? And because a dog's poop is in your walking space because it's an apartment complex. So nobody has a yard. That's still rude. It's still rude. Don't at me. But paying (laughs) a Kelly- to swab to shit, like dog stuff. Yeah. <laughs> to
0: compare it to your canine database. So think like, smarter, not harder. Get a camera and then just Get watch a camera. It. Right. That's right. way yeah. easier than canine. Exactly. DNA.
2: Exactly.
1: Okay, so you <laughs> look at dirty panties, blood, and <laughs> touch DNA. <Genie. laughs> what is your favorite item or kind of evidence to process? swabs because it was clean and it wasn't stinky easy
2: (laughs) yeah the longest part of a dna case for me it's the very beginning and the very end so like the forensic serology Mm -hmm. part when you're trying to id the bodily fluid so if you get like a whole item if you get a blanket or clothing or whatever and they're like hey i think that yeah I think there's saliva or I think there's blood or semen. The screening process for that can take forever, depending on what you're looking for, how large the item is. Once you finally locate what the item is or what the cutting is that you're going to take and move forward, like the actual lab work to get a DNA profile, I can tell you I've done it in 24 hours before. I don't suggest that but I've done it in 24 hours. It has happened when I was a crazy woman and was trying to do something in literally 24 hours. So you have the beginning that takes a long time and then the ending can sometimes take a long time if you get really crazy complex profiles, then doing all the interpretation and the statistics and the report writing, That can take you a long time, too. So,
1: yeah, everybody hates report writing. They
2: never show that part on CSI. I'm like, I want to see, like, some sexy music with someone who's, yeah, I wrote this report. Like
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, this how many loci. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So basically what I'm saying is I feel like I would have been a favorite of yours. And this is why I have one memory of submitting not a swab. I always swabbed my evidence. And sent it in. But I'll tell you the time I didn't. So, allegedly, a woman lived next to a federal law enforcement officer of an unspecified agency. Because I'm not doing that. Guess she was standing in her garage. He came over to her. And I don't know what conversation happened. He ended up dry humping her and janking all over her pants. This woman, instead of like... Actioning it then, she chose to take duct tape and, like, dab the area of her pants with the jank and then fold it together and put it in an envelope and, like, slept on it for, like, seven years. And then... Wow. One day, seven years later, she decides to get pissed about it. I don't know why. I don't know if, like, they were having an affair and she kept it as, like, some crazy loot or if... Her husband found out, and I don't know the reason why seven years later she decided to get mad, but she got mad. So she submits these pieces of folded up duct tape. Not duct tape. What's the one that's clear? Packing tape. I'm sorry, everyone. So she accuses him of sexual assault, and then per protocol, they had to take his gun and his badge, and he had to be suspended per the investigation or whatever. So they submit these things to me. I use an ALS on the tape. I do not see sperm for the ALS. Okay, fine. So there was like several pieces of tape. So I went ahead and decided to separate because she (laughs) had to fix the sticky end together to separate it and do a semen presumptive negative. I did not do all of the pieces of tape to be clear, but I'm like, okay, two different methods have been a fail, but I am not a lab rat. <laughs> so for the first time ever, I submitted not a swab because it was sticky side of tape to the lab. Wouldn't you know it? There were sperm cells in there.
2: Wow. I was yeah, blown that, that's away. That's amazing.
1: All right. So she had come into the PD for an interview with her husband and I had wanted to hear it because I was going to be the one doing it. And she was not Of sound mind. So I thought, okay, like this is probably a mental health issue. I don't know if the mental health issue is from the incident. Like I wasn't accusing her of lying, but I was thinking this is not something is off. But then there ended up being sperms in there. But I think ultimately they couldn't articulate that. She didn't want to be dry humped until she was janked on.
2: Yeah. Wow. Just the way that you say it. That's why I was happy. That's
0: crazy. crazy. Well, I
1: don't know what to say. What you want me to say? Like sploogie? Like, I don't <laughs> know how to say. There was sperm on her pants, Shelley. Okay. Like, I'm not trying to make light of this woman's experience, but I didn't know how to say
0: it in a way that wasn't like... <laughs> I mean, we definitely want your thoughts. We definitely want your thoughts, Kelly. No,
2: that's interesting. Yeah. I mean, she probably... Kudos to whoever did that analysis, because getting stuff like that from um, sticky yeah. stuff is hard. Because I would have said she would have been better off just taking her clothing off and saving it and putting it she in She would a have bag. been better off. Yeah.
1: I asked her that. You want to know what she said? What'd she say? Those were my favorite pants. They were her favorite pants, and that's why she did the tape thing. She knew she wanted to continue to wear them. So- all I have to say is that the pants were valuable enough to her to collect the evidence of were they said loo- Were they Lou <laughs> I
0: don't
1: think they make sweatpants. <laughs> no. And the reason why I distinctly remember it is because. I don't know about your lab, but there's, like, the submission window, and then, like, if you go into each department, whether it be ballistics or prints or, like, the DNA lab, there's always, like, a little lobby, and to go beyond that is treason, but I have a problem with boundaries, so... <laughs> now I didn't walk into the lab, like, I was causing a problem or anything, but there's, like, desks beyond whatever, so I was there to drop off other evidence, and I'm thinking about going in there and asking because I had really been pressed on this case because it was a federal agent, yada, yada, yada. So I'm like, oh, I'll stop by. And the lobby area was empty, so I just kept walking. And when I walked in, three forensic biologists or serologists were like, Surprise Pikachu looking at me like, what the hell are you doing in here? I'm like, I'm sorry. Nobody's at the desk. I'm just very curious about a case, but I'm not trying to be rude about it. I just want to know what's up. It just so happened one of those people was the scientist. And she's like, I found sperms everywhere. And I'm like... (laughs) You did. So now that I was the surprise Pikachu, and she's like, it was really hard. I spent a long time. Wow. But there were spurts actually. Yeah. I don't know what she did. Yeah. Okay,
2: I got to get my little notebook out because that gives me a research idea. And Ooh. I know this is weird. Yeah, oh, This is great. My, this is amazing. My students are always looking for research ideas, but that makes me want to look at the deposition of semen on different types of substrates and to compare the and ability to... And then collect it
1: on sticky sides. Yes. I
2: mean, tape would not have been something that I... I mean, not that I would think it would be impossible because I've definitely worked with stuff that was not adhesive before, but I don't know if I've ever seen any research studies on like the yeah. ability to get seminal fluid or sperm from like a sticky substrate. There may be something out there, but... I, Now I have to write it down because I'm always needing an idea. Yeah. Yes.
1: (laughs) Only on Crime Scene Queens do we talk about collecting semen with effing packing tape off of sweatpants yeah. and then seven years later there's still being a sample
2: demon <laughs> from tape and other substrates and i'm trying to think what other substrates we could you I mean, we could probably well, test all kinds of things Wood, other
1: clothing material like i mean you've got lots of or carpet or bedding or the wall the ceiling
0: Okay, so my question for you, though, is we were talking about earlier before the story about how you were handed a sample and you had to try to figure out, you know, is a large sample and you had to figure out, you know, is there blood, semen, is there saliva, like what is on there? So my question coming from a legal standpoint is how do you combat bias with that? In other words, do you know the details of the case or how do you get your case notes? Where do they come from? How do you know what you're looking for and how do you explain, especially on the stand, to combat the bias on that? That's such a good question because I have a story to go with that as well.
2: But (laughs) there's an issue I have with the way we approach these things sometimes, right? So essentially what happens now in most labs is a crime occurs, you get the narrative right so you get the victim's narrative you get the suspect scenario you get you know the investigator scenario so on and so forth and the reality is like depending on what type of crime is being you know saying that they was committed and what was said in the narratives that does often frame the testing that you do so like Mm -hmm. if someone says they were sexually assaulted usually. Not always, but usually we will get like a sexual assault kit and it'll have, you know, the different items within it. So it'll have usually like oral swabs, vaginal cervical swabs. It may have penile swabs involved, Um, different types of swabs, cuttings could be underwear included. And there are certain items where you do pretty much all the tests. So like usually with a vaginal cervical swab I'm probably going to test for most biological fluids but then there's other items where you only are going to do the specific type of test based on the scenario so like if someone says he bit me on my breath then if you have like the bite mark licking swabs and you're going to test specifically for saliva or something like that. So a lot of what we do is framed around the narrative. Usually only Mm. when we have cases that, or at least this was in in my situation, if we had cases where we thought the victim was incapacitated in any kind of way, like if they were drunk or sleep, or if we had victims who were maybe you know, intellectually disabled or elderly or folks like that who, you know, there was a suspicion that they may not be able to necessarily recount the story best they could, then it was always like the whole gamut of test children. Same for them as well. We're going to do all the things. But then I think there's an element of common sense that we have to use as well. Right. So we know And I know I've I've had cases like this where either people don't tell the truth or their recollection is faulty, right? Mm -hmm. So even especially with victims, they're in the middle of something that's super traumatic. And so they may not necessarily be able to remember yes. all the things that happen. So in a lot of this, you're going to follow your protocol. So each lab is going to usually have certain protocols to say, if you get this type of case, if you have these types of samples, these are the types of tests that you should do. But there's an element of expertise that goes into it. So maybe you see something and you're like, oh, that looks like it could be semen. That's like a random white crusty stain. So you shouldn't ignore that just because maybe your protocol didn't necessarily say to test for that. You want to use your common sense. But I think one of the cases that has bothered me the most since I left the lab was a case that was a sexual assault And there was no semen detected on the swabs. And based on my sexual assault protocol, you know, I tested for all the biological fluids. And normally, you know, if everything's negative, then you're done. You write your case report and you're like, you know, I've tested these 15 items for blood, semen, saliva, whatever. They were negative. I can't explain it. I like to feel like it's divine intervention because, I mean, I just really can't explain what pushed me to do this. But I took the vaginal cervical swabs forward for DNA, even though they were negative for semen, because something just was tugging at me.
1: Intuition or
2: divine. Do you know I got a profile? I got a male profile from these. I mean, in. I would have never. I mean, in a normal case, this is this would not be something that happens like you just ended. And I press. And here's what's crazy. We put it into the DNA database and sure enough, it hit to someone who was never even considered a suspect. Amber, they had four suspects. Mm. Two of them were actually. Oh, it was so good. Two of them were actually in prison. Two of the suspects. Not a single item of evidence came back to match them. So they ended up exonerating those suspects. That's
1: awesome. I don't know
2: whether or not they were involved.
1: Which is just as important. Yeah. Right.
2: It surely is. It's so important because I think that's one thing that the public misunderstands about our job is we're not just out to get the bad guys, right? We're here to make sure justice is served, whoever that may be. So there are people and. Again, I've worked cases where folks are falsely accused of crimes. And then sure enough, you let the evidence take you where it takes you. And it does not lead to that person. So, I mean, like I said, I don't know what level of involvement, if any, those gentlemen had, because who knows? They It was a gang rape. So they could have been holding her down. I don't know. The reality is there was no physical evidence to connect them to yeah. the crime. But there was physical evidence for this one guy who happened to hit. Yeah. And here's what's even, look, even to add another element of craziness, this guy's profile was in the database because he was in jail. Mm-hmm. When this rape occurred, he had only been out of jail for a week. And do you know the next week he was back in jail for something else? Jeez. <laughs> I
1: said, well, clearly what? he has a problem with impulse control.
2: Yeah. Or Literally. he just
1: really likes jail.
2: Exactly. I mean, I think what I has bothered me the most about that case is since then, I haven't been able to stop thinking about how many other cases like that have I missed or other yeah. folks missed because we follow our protocol and we stop where we're supposed to stop. Yeah. But there was, I mean, and I'm sure this was a very rare thing. Like, I don't want people to think that, like, this is something that would happen in every single case. I mean, to get a profile like this from a vaginal swab with no seminal fluid. Again, I feel like that's another research
0: study I should do. But I mean, really rare. But on that, you know, you normally wouldn't do that. So you went outside, you went above and beyond. Is that something that was allowed that you had the freedom to do?
2: Yeah. Yeah. And so, this
0: case was a long
2: time ago. And so I can't remember what specifically triggered me because I think it was more than just I'm just going to keep going. I think it was one of those things where the investigators kept asking about, you know, can we send more? Can we send this? You know, because yeah. they have these four suspects and I've tested like 40 items at that point, And I'm like, there's nothing there. There's nothing there. There's nothing there.
1: expensive. Investigators don't usually like if they're putting that energy to you that they really want resolution, I'm sure you felt some kind of like, okay, right. these are people that are very exhausted by victimization and tragedy, and they are hard on this. So something is different.
2: Right. So I was like, well, I'm going to process this. And I mean, I won't say that's the only case that I've done. That I had another case where they wanted me to test for saliva on an item that had Fecal material on it. And we can't do that because the component that we test for in saliva, it's called amylase. Okay. It's present in really high quantities in fecal matter as well. So if feces is present, you can't do a test for saliva and say, oh, it's saliva, because it could actually be testing positive for feces. So what I ended up doing was I said, well, I'm just going to take it forward for DNA and see if I get a profile at all because Mm -hmm. we may not be able to say it's from the saliva, but if the victim, there, yeah. the profile will show up. I've definitely had those situations where I kind of use that expert intuition to chime in. But I think some of this stuff is being resolved by the way protocols are changing in labs now. So like, for example, A lot of DNA labs aren't even doing traditional screening for sperm anymore on a slide the way they used to. Really? Now, instead of just doing that and looking for semen with the traditional test, a lot of labs are putting all swabs through a different type of screening, which just tells you very quickly whether or not there's any DNA present and whether there's male DNA versus just human DNA. So I think that alone is going to help solve a lot of this. What if there's a profile there? Because by doing that type of screening, I would have caught that on that screening. Like I would have done the screening and be like, oh, these are her vaginal swabs, but there's male DNA present. So I think it's really good that 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 labs are starting to move to that. Right. Exactly. They don't, even though, you know. Sperm can hang around for a while, but not too long because it, it can get kind of angry long? in there. So I think up to seven days. It can days. get angry in there? Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah.
1: It can hang out <laughs> for seven days.
2: Like- yes. Yeah. It's a pretty angry environment in there, though. So. Cheers to the so
0: swimmers funny. that finally make it. Yeah, the champions.
1: Yeah, that's why we have to get
2: profiles from any consensual partners within the last week or two weeks, I think actually we would collect up to two weeks. Oh, out I didn't know because, that.
0: That's yeah, interesting. yeah.
2: So if if you've had consensual sex within the last week or two, we would get an exclusionary profile just because we know that a possibility yeah. that we could still get yeah. their
1: profiles. So sexual partners, if you have to get swabbed, don't freak out sometimes it's good for you to get swabbed. Don't deny it because you don't want to be put into CODIS. You either are a part of this rape or you're not, and you might as well get excluded. And it's not funny. I know I'm saying it with a voice, but I've had like burglaries. I've had all kinds of crime scenes where people refuse to be swabbed because of the misunderstanding of CODIS. Like, that Kelly clearly laid out for us earlier, but so many people don't get this and it's so obnoxious because then the victim can't get justice.
2: And yeah, like we said, there's a lot of rules and regulations that like you can mm-hmm. never put like victim and exclusionary standards into the national level right. of COVID. I mean Which now, is we'll why say they have then. to go in a
1: different bag.
2: Now, there are some local level labs where victim samples can go in but it's just for the local level like it will never get uploaded to like yeah the state or federal level that was the yeah. case when I was in the lab some time ago so I don't know if that's changed but when I was in a lab there were some local level labs that permitted not mine victim. they
1: yeah. did not play that game Yeah, Yeah, I think that's going to be
2: very rare. I think most places, if they haven't phased that out, they will be very soon.
1: We had to have the swab boxes for each sample. The case swabs had to be in a separate envelope from elimination and Mm -hmm. potential suspect swabs. Mm -hmm. They had to be all completely separated. And it was like at least two layers, sometimes three, depending on whether or not I put the envelopes in the bag. So lots of integrity there for CODIS.
0: Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. They're very serious. How easily is DNA cross-contaminated? Depends on what you mean by cross-contamination. So <laughs> if you've got, you know, two swabs and you know each are individually packaged in their envelopes, and then the two envelopes are put into one envelope and mm-hmm. you know, maybe the samples are somewhat moist. Laura loves that moist. word. Yeah, loves that voiced. word.
1: What's the probability of transferring through several different layers of evidence packaging?
0: For some reason, the DNA swabs were put in manila envelopes.
1: Or let's just say you dropped one. Okay, so you dropped you got one. got it in the box.
0: Yeah, <laughs> maybe there I you dropped one This, I don't know, you're, you're multitasking maybe. your swab in two. Same time. I don't know. I don't oh. know. I just, without right. giving away details, it's really hard to explain this. So, I mean, separate packaging... I don't
2: think there's really much to worry about, right? If you have two separate swab boxes and they're in the same manila envelope, there's not really a point of concern there. Now, if you're talking about putting two swabs in the same package, it, that's
0: that's a no-no. That's a no-no. Yeah. That's a no-no. If I dropped just, it, can
1: I still submit it? <laughs> Is it the five-second rule? <laughs> what if I dropped it? Is there a five-second rule? Is there a five-second rule? There's no such thing as a five-second rule. It's still so- dirty
0: where did you drop it
1: where did you okay it? And
0: so <laughs> there was this one time and maybe i was peeing and my- no, I, I didn't it. bring
1: my swabs with me to the bathroom <laughs> but i have dropped okay a csi may have, <laughs> dropped I have the swab. A- <laughs> asking for a friend i'm asking for a friend so there are two occasions where somebody might have dropped a swab And one of them would have been the person swabbed like a touch DNA surface in like a bedroom, like a cat, like a dresser. And then when putting said swabs into box, one of them slid out and went to the floor of the (laughs) same room that might have happened to a person. Another time that this might have happened to a person is when they collected a physical item of evidence, brought it back to the lab, swabbed said item of evidence, and then did the thing where you put them in the drying station. Mm -hmm. And then Mm -hmm. it fell then on the floor. That might have happened to a person.
2: I would say, obviously, still submit it. But documentation (laughs) is key, right? So you just want to say BTW. (laughs) Oh, and I only say that just because the DNA techniques that we use now are just so sensitive. I mean, they pick up everything. I'm just shocked at the low levels of DNA that we're able to detect. And I just always say it's just better to just document any and everything just in case something crazy or wonky because you want to be able to explain things because at the end of the day, we're going to see what we see on the profile. But I don't think that if you dropped it, that's going to negate any results that come up from the actual scene of the crime.
1: Luckily, that person that's my friend that I'm asking for did document that on the (laughs) submission form very good your friend was very smart to do
2: that that's the thing
0: speaking of friends how about kelly can you tell our listeners maybe how they would find you yeah where would they go to, to find out how amazing you actually are like what's a website what's a you know social media tell us more So I'm mostly active on
2: Instagram at Kelly the Scientist. And that's Kelly with a Y, no E-Y, just K-L-Y. I do have a website also, kellythescientist.com. I'm on LinkedIn. I think you can find it, Kelly the Scientist on there as well, probably, or just Kelly Knight. But yeah, on Instagram, I post a whole lot of stuff. I post about forensics, but I talk about Mm -hmm. science and STEM and I'm also a mama and a professor. So I kind of throw those things in there as well because my content is my life. So I'm not one of those super niche people who only post about one thing, but. (laughs)
1: Yeah. Oh, I love it. I love it. Yeah,
2: There's definitely a lot of forensic people on there. My favorite part of the forensic conference last week was meeting the people who have been following me on Instagram because Mm -hmm. I had no idea. They'd be like, oh my God, are you? calling the side god, I got like I am Oh,
1: it's hard not to recognize <laughs> you. Oh, she oh, comes no. into the vendor hall and it was like the cheese and wine thing and I'm like that is definitely Kelly. Yeah, cheese and wine yourself. But Kelly, thank you so much for being on our show. It was a real treat to have you and to it have such an experience. Definitely. It was thank so you awesome.
2: for having me.
1: Thank yes. you.
0: This was fun. Yes, thank you so okay. much. Yeah, I
1: mean, so fun. And guess what for our audience? If you're going to go out there and commit a crime, do Kelly and I a favor and leave lots and lots of DNA everywhere so that when it eventually gets to Shelly, there can be a conviction. And the Crime Scene Queens, you can find us at at CrimeSceneQueens.com on pretty much everything or hello at CrimeSceneQueens.com for email.
0: Thank you so much, Kelly. It was such a pleasure. Bye. Till next week. Thank (laughs) you. All right.
1: Bye, everybody. Crime Scene Queens is a Q Code Media production. Executive producers David Henning and Steve Wilson. Produced by Ryan Counts House and edited by Will Tendy.